this is Lit Century, where we're talking about one book for each year of the 20th century. For this episode, the year is 1981, and the book is The Cheneysville Incident by David Bradley. My guest today is Matthew Hunt, who is a writer from St. Lucia. A few of his pieces that you might want to look for are In Praise of Minor Literature, that he wrote as a correspondent for the Paris Review Daily, and Albert Murray and the Americas at Full Stop Magazine. And those are just the ones that he asked me to highlight for his bio, but honestly, he's written a ton of great stuff that I'm sure you'll all want to go read. So this book, it's tough to describe. It's very long and complex, and it has aspects of a lot of different genres. The big picture is um, historian John Washington is investigating the death of his father, Moses Washington, and the incident from the title, which is a story from the town's history um, where 13 people killed themselves rather than being captured and returned to slavery. And that incident is its connected to his father's death in kind of obscure ways that the book goes into. That's the outline. Several big parts of the book take the form of monologues or conversations, so I want to tell you enough about those that it will be clear what Matthew and I are talking about in our conversation. There's a conversation between John and his dying mentor, Jack, who um, is an old moonshiner who takes pride in living apart from society um, or at odds with society, particularly white society. He, um, he talks a lot about teaching John to be a man and what that should involve, including um, he has the idea of orneriness, which is kind of constant resistance toward white people and their agendas. Um, and then another big part of the book involves John um, talking to his white girlfriend, Judith. He's explaining his research and his thinking about it. And she asks a lot of questions that kind of indicate that she's coming from a very different perspective on some of these facts. Um, Obviously white and um, sort of more upper class. Then uh, one other character that I think we should describe ahead of time is John's great-grandfather CK, who escaped from slavery and made money with moonshine and then traveled back through the Underground Railroad to free other enslaved people. He's one of the 13 people that dies by suicide when he's trapped by slave catchers. And with all that background, the thing that John Washington eventually learns has to do with West African traditional beliefs about death and the loss of that tradition when enslaved people were forcibly converted to Christianity. So everything that he's studying about history and these deaths are all aiming at this revelation at the end and how it changes him. Um... And I think we go into sort of some of the dimensions of that revelation in our conversation. So this is actually a book that several people had suggested as something that we should do on Lit Century. I was thrilled that you were willing to read the whole thing. It's super long, super intense, involved, incredibly ambitious book. What did you think of it? That's a very good question. Um, I think with any any serious homework, the your feelings are, are always going to be always going to be mixed. Um, I should first say my talk about my introduction to the book. Uh, it was um, about 2006 when the New York Times came out with the I was the best books of the past 25 years or something like that. Yeah, Marlon James novelist Marlon James. Um, then at that point he had like one. He just had one book out, and I I just stumbled across his blog, 
and he was and he wrote this wrote this this entry and he was proposing some some alternatives to to the popular names which had been which have been listed and two of the novels that he mentioned were um, Charles Johnson's Oxfording Tale and this one, David Bradley's Janesville Incident. Yeah, so that's how I, I, I was first introduced to the book. I read it, oh my goodness, well over a decade ago. Nabokov has this line, you know, the only um, the only reading is, is rereading. And when I was going through this a, a second time, I guess, I'm just seeing different different things in the book. Which I which I hadn't which I hadn't seen in the first place. Um, so I actually found out what the incident or the incident. So yeah, and I, and I figured out what the incident was before I actually read the book in the first time. And what really moved what really moved me was the first. I, I mean, I thought it was I thought it was a great novel just in terms of the, the actual structure of it. And as with you know any great novel, I would think you know the plot, or I should say, knowing knowing the ending, well, you don't you don't you don't just read to find out what happens. Although it is great as that as well. Yeah, there's definitely a simpatico between you and this book. If your first urge is to go and figure out the history behind it before you even read it, because that's basically what the book is about: is the urge to figure out the history behind what you see, I mean, the, the plot of the book is a, a character who's figuring out the history behind what he's encountering in reality. Like, what's the explanation? What's the human explanation? What's the sort of uh, the infrastructure? It starts with this sort of amazing riff on bathrooms in bus station or buses and uh, trains and airplanes. And yeah, um, the divide between the, between different modes of transportation. It has that sense of investigation, that sense of trying to see beyond what you're told about why things are the way they are. So, yeah, do you want to, I mean, do you know stuff about the incident that it's actually based on beyond what's t- said in the book? Well, the incident says, well, all of these things are, are in the, the realm of of legend. Mm-hmm. And I, I was actually just... Just a few weeks ago, I was actually looking at a, at a report that's actually featured featured Bradley. Um, should we should we spoil the spoil the ending of the novel? Yeah, spoil everything. <laughs> we can completely spoil the ending of the novel. the The Chinesville incident is that a group of runaway slaves were had just crossed in crossed the Mason Dixon line seeking freedom. They were being chased by, I guess, bounty hunters and whatnot. And realizing that they were trapped, they opted to commit mass suicide instead of being returned to slavery. Yeah. So that's basically the incident. And um, what happens is that they are are buried... Where they fell. yeah, yeah. Bur- buried where he fell, which was close to a of a family graveyard, and I guess the significance of that location would, would actually comes up. Yeah, yeah. So that's 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 basically it. 
was a was a mass suicide. Um. So is that is that factual? Now we're getting to the, some of the questions that the novel is asking. Is it factual? There. Well, there are def- there are definitely graves there, and they're 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 marked. So it's, that actually is a is a physical physical grave. The, the actual story of what happened, we're not entirely sure. Again, these things are gone through the the realm of of legend. Yeah, but there is it is there is some historical basis to it. The the graves are actually there. Yeah, yeah. I did not do the background research, but I guess maybe approached it. Um, I, I guess less as a historian. Yeah, but that itself is actually one of the issues that the, that the novel is addressing. Like, what is the way to to approach it? You know. Yeah, because I think that the the book often emphasizes this idea of logic and facts. In some ways, there. The, the book is sort of structured around a series of monologues sort of pitched as conversations sometimes, like sometimes there's an interlocutor who will ask questions, but a lot of times it's a, somebody giving a monologue. It's kind of about how they think it's right to approach life and how it's right to approach. Um, I think all of the people are black men, right? Who are, who are speaking like all of the speaking characters. It's, well, no, well, the the judge. Okay, yeah. Okay, and of course Judith. Oh, yeah, and I, I mean, you you were just saying before we hit record on this that Judith was sort of placed in. Judith is uh, John, the historian's white yeah. girlfriend, and she's, I would say, really only barely a character. I think that in a lot of cases, it's difficult to read her as a character. It's easier to read her as a sounding board for him to sort of express his feelings. Oh. In a lot of ways, it makes sense that John wants to explain himself to a white person and explain, express a lot of anger that is very evidently justified by what he's saying. And um, the New York Times review that I read from when it came out um, says, I'm going to, I actually pulled it up cause I found it. So, well, um, it's, it's saying just what a completely masterful piece of writing this is. And then it says, there's also been a fair amount of white baiting of the rather standard kind, um, which only white readers far gone in guilt or masochism will find gratifying or even interesting, which I mean, I'm white. I was just kind of horrified by that as as a way of thinking about African-American history, which is after all American history. And that I, sometimes I felt like Judith's position was maybe overly naive. And then I thought about that New York times review and I thought, okay, maybe not. Maybe there are actually quite a lot of Judith type people that John is speaking to when he's saying, actually, this was extremely bad. And that there are Judas saying, what? But not really that bad, was it? And him having to say, yes, it was in fact that bad. Yeah, I feel like those issues are are just quite explicitly within the text itself. And, you know, because some of those things, we end up in, the, in, the, in a situation where we're wondering, you know, the extent to which the narrator is a stand-in for the author and all, all sorts of stuff. And I think 
you know, again, a lot of these these issues are are sort of embedded within the within the the, the text it, itself. Yeah, I I agree. Um, I I just think that um, a lot of the people that he's speaking to, like um, Jack, and you know his his understanding of his father is just he's just much more interested in those people his understanding is much more profound and i don't think of it as like a form of self-flagellation to pay attention to what they're saying and to figure that this doesn't have to be a book about judith it's okay yeah, you know it, because it, the thing about about him being called a judith you know john is pretty cold to everyone well, so that's actually like the big problem that I had reading this book that actually felt intermittently kind of disturbing to me was how much more invested he was in the men than any women. And I was thinking, I mean, there's a lot of sexist books in the world. Why did it bother me so much in this particular book? not about white women, but about black women, the way that he thinks about and treats black women versus how he's treating and thinking about black men in his own family or outside of his family, or there's a, there's a, a speech in one of uh, Jack's monologues early on in the book where he's describing kind of the essence of, masculinity, the essence of being a man and dignity for men as coming from control and that you can't control the wind. You can't control, you know, all of these various facets of nature. And you're going to constantly be like, people are going to try to control you white people in particular. And so you have to be ornery in response to that. You have to always resist control from white people um, by consistent resistance. And I was like, yes, this totally makes sense to me. But why are you then being ornery to your black girlfriend, your mother, you know, like just the, the complete refusal to accept them as also his own people or become curious about their lives or their reasoning for doing things. And, um, and then really it's because of the rest of the thing that Jack said, which is that if a man, you know, dignity belongs to men, dignity comes from control. And um, the only thing you can control is women where the, there's so much dignity invested in the idea of being a moonshine, uh, like a really good moonshine cooker and um, like having all of this logistics about how, who you're going to sell to and how, and then moving through the forest and, uh, escaping lynching and um, like ways of sort of existing around the periphery of this extremely hostile and violent white society um, through cleverness, through right, through like picking up. Um, and also remember that that Jack and Josh are actually also segregated, even from the hill. Yes, yes, because they live on the. They live in the outskirts, so they don't. They're not even directly within the 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 broader black community itself. 
Yeah. And I think that, that the mother, John's mother wants him to join the broader black community more. And that that involves that she wants him to sort of go along and get along more, but at the cost of his dignity. I think that this is a, this is almost a a theme, which um, at least goes back, goes back deep in like American literature where, you know, feminization is, 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 is associated with, with civilization in, in a sense, because if we look at something like uh, Moby Dick, you know, where you know, all men and a lot of men Ishmael is going out to sea. <laughs> if you look yeah. at Huck Finn, what happens at the end of Huck Finn, where, you know, he's escaping civilization, because I who was it, Aunt Sally, if I'm not mistaken. Trying to turn him civilized. So, like, this is a this is a theme which which is running through, and yeah, that that's it. And I guess the great irony in this situation is that one of the reasons that that old Jack comes to get John is because I I think Moses says. That that John, unlike his brother Billy, has uh, was it a lot of women in him. Oh yes, that he thinks that he's that his nature is feminized, and so he needs to become more masculine by drinking whiskey in the woods with Jack and and learning. Also, the rules remember of that his maternal grandfather was a professor and apparently there had been a line of of professionals and educated people to his mother's side and you know he ends up being being a, yeah. a history professor it's true it's true that um that he is sort of secretly following in his mother's family footsteps even though his focus is so much more on his father and his father's family but there's also an interesting about the father's family because if you look at the ending, well, I guess it's technically it's all at the ending. It's when we hear about Moses' family. So it turns out that Lehman Washington was actually a fairly prominent black mortician. Yeah. And that Moses grew up like. I guess you could say almost a a child of privilege in the in the city. Yeah. So like he wasn't really I mean like that he had to like, re that. Right. So so Jack and Josh, they grew up on the on the far side. They were the only survivors of uh well, I, I think it was a typhoid. Yeah, it was that they were the two survivors of that plague. Yeah. It sort of makes sense why they would have certain views of of life of of women well, and, you know relationships and whatnot so but Moses is sort of different yeah and, and Moses had to have the entire attic full of books to really understand his own grandfather CK like he did he wasn't just raised in that tradition he had to fully sort of intellectually understand it to reach it which is also where John is like John has to intellectually sort of reach that outside of society, outside of um, 
of being controlled by this very hostile racist society. I think that the theme in the book is that the thing that the women are doing, that's the equivalent of moonshine and deer hunting and um, living off the land like that is sex work. And I think the book is pretty consistent in considering that as like the ultimate degradation and this really um, like the least dignified possible thing, the least ornery possible thing is to be what he calls a courtesan for white men. Um, and knowing that his, I think that's, that's the thing. It isn't just a sex work is being like specifically for white is being yeah. the, one of the things that we had talked about over, uh, over the internet was his relationship with this girl, Mara, who's his neighbor when he's a child and he, Mara Jameson. yes. And so her mother makes her living as a sex worker for white men. And, he knows that she is probably going to go into the family business soon. And so he's in love with her and his brother is also in love with her. Um, but he like, they're kind of seeing each other at night, but he like refuses to acknowledge her during the day because he um, believes that, that he's kind of like stealing. I think he, he says something, almost these exact words, but like stealing something that belongs to a white man, uh, meaning having sex with her when she would be desired and paid by these men. This whole sequence bothered me so much. I have to tell you, it bothered me so much because he describes it frequently as being logical, that he understands that she has these financial pressures. She has these social pressures. She's going to do this thing, but he doesn't necessarily see his own role in refusing to acknowledge her in public, refusing to connect with her more authentically as one of those forces that is pushing her into this job. And then yeah. further his degree of judgment of the job when he actually likes, he likes it when his male relatives are able to sort of subvert white respectability and make money. But it's like the idea that women would be doing this along with the feeling that, that paternity is never something that's guaranteed. Like you never quite know if, your wife or girlfriend's baby is in fact your own baby. Um, I don't know. I wanted him to. Yeah, but I think the. I wanted him to just love them better. I got it. I just also. Yeah, I get it. But I think with, with the case of. I think the consistent theme is, I think is a feeling of being. Um, subordinate because Miss Jameson, remember, it isn't just that that she has white customers; is that she quite explicitly only has white male customers. Yeah, and that that was why he initially started the relationship with Mara is because she wanted to sort of be seen as made yeah, so dirty. Yeah, um, right, right. because the one because the. So I remember when when CK is in New Orleans, one of the things that he does is that he um I can't remember, is that his one of his first sets of of Yeah of reno, of runaways are the women Yeah are the women in the brothel and when they get up to, to Philadelphia 
I think he he helps them establish themselves. Yeah, and and one of them is the mother of his child, um, who, right. yeah, and the thing that I kept wishing for is I kept wishing for John himself to push on his own logic, like the amount that he's able to see that the slaver's logic is not his own logic, that he's going to look at the facts and, you know, draw his own constellations between the stars and understand what's really going on around him for himself and his male relatives. And then I just felt like he just bought into the slaver's logic about women so much about how much they were kind of just like a resource to be consumed by either a white man or a black man. And that the whole value of really so many of the black women just had to do with how complete the sexual control could be that if the sexual control couldn't be complete, then it was just like, you don't know if the kid's yours. There's no, there's nothing there. There's nothing, which is like, okay, I see it. I know that that's, he's describing something. But also remember, because the line about, about not knowing whether the child is yours, um, I, I'm not even going to attempt, I'm going to mangle sure. the Latin term. But remember, the issue was, was really about um, not, the, the concern was, was really about making sure that I'm trying to remember what was it. Yes, that if the if the mother of of the child was 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 freed, yeah, then the child was automatically free. So there was a concern with black men having children with white women, with white yeah. women, because those children would yeah could not be slaves. It w- yeah that they would then be free black people yeah. Um, I mean, it, again, the book is describing something really clearly that I understand is in fact reality of like how people are thinking, why they're doing what they're doing. It's just that the, the meta narrative of the book is that he's trying to find, and he ultimately does find this sort of element of black wisdom that was stolen by Christianization beyond being stolen by slavery. But this idea that, that death isn't the end of people being together. And um, that it's, it's kind of like not the end of your personhood um, or your membership in the community and when he got there, it felt so emotionally powerful. It felt like, like there was something that, you know, you were describing the, it's like, there's sort of a hazy line between facts and legends, but the fact that there is that hazy line between fact and legend that he's trying to pick apart. It's like, he's had something around him all the time. And he's sort of been able to feel it, kind of like the voices in the wind. But he doesn't quite know how to put it together into something, into a real picture. 
And then he does, and it all comes together and he really understands something. And I mean, you know, as a person who also loves long novels and big picture thinking, I was like, I feel it. I get it. I get why this is a great novel. This is like an amazing place that you ended up. But yeah, I'm like, how do you talk about black culture without black women? It, I don't know. It just it sort of it sort of it sort of slips it sort of slips through. I mean, because really, when we're talking about a black black woman, I guess the the real main person there is would be his mother, Yvette, and and what and what she represents. Because I feel that throughout the the book, there is a, a series of of reconciliations, you know, at you know, at various levels. Because I'm not sure. Again, even when we're talking about you know the patriarchal line, yeah. I'm not sure how how close any of these people actually are to each other in any at least in the conventional in the conventional sense. You know, I don't think John is that close to Moses. Moses was not close to. To Layman, um, yeah, CK. What happened to him? So he couldn't have been close to 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 his son, you know. And then you know, poor poor Zach. We saw what happens to him. Yeah. But yes, there is a sort of of reconciliation. Um, even when we're talking about in terms of relationships, remember at the end. Granted, she only shows up for a few pages, but like one of the major characters is, is Harriet. So I was actually, I wanted to say two things. One is I think that you're right that these men are, it's like they're holding on to their fathers in death and their grandfather, you know, because they, because they don't have that relationship in real life. Like they're not talking over the kitchen table necessarily. Um, and part of that is that sense that that the male line is disrupted by white control over black women. Um, and that that feeling that your personhood doesn't end in death is is partly a way that they can hold on to each other and partly a way that they can have a conversation with someone that they can fully control because um, a dead person, is not making any new comments, you know, like John can hold on to Moses Washington past his death, but Moses Washington isn't actually doing anything new that will disturb John's peace in any way. Um, And also Moses Washington can be that Moses Washington is dead. You know, there is almost access to an, an idealized um, version of him, which which would have been less easy to, to access while while he was actually alive. Although there is, I am trying to remember, there is an instant towards the end where he gets more more nurturing. 
I think it's one John gets into the fight at school. Oh yes, yes. Um, I actually took notes. On yeah, that over scene. over the over the over um over the the Abe Lincoln joke. Yeah. So just for um, listeners who haven't read the book, uh, the there's a racist joke that um, is told to John, our main character, and he doesn't quite understand what's wrong with it. Um, and he tells it to his father. Moses Washington, his father hits him sort of out of like horror at the moment. And then his father goes to him and apologizes for hitting him saying like, I didn't mean to, and a man should never hit someone um, when they don't mean to. um, And they don't deserve it as, you know, as I think it's also important to note and the book makes it clear that what really Offends Moses was wasn't necessarily the. It wasn't the racist word. It was the idea. It wasn't the racist word. It was it was the it was the notion that Abe Lincoln is the one who 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 had given them freedom. Yeah. Well, and then you know, and then the book, of course, goes on to show how invested he was in this ancestor that had done the CK that had done this, um, this work in not just getting free, but in getting others free as right. well. And so it totally makes sense. It's um, wonderful storytelling as this book shows over and over. And then again, yeah. And to, I think we're circling back to, to the, to the role of, of black women. And in that sense, Harriet then becomes almost like the, the spiritual matriarch, because as when we read the book, we find out that her offspring actually die in the die in the incident. So technically speaking, she's not she's not she's not John's actual ancestor, but she becomes the the spiritual ancestor. She becomes the 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 matriarch. Yeah, I was thinking like obviously she has Harriet Tubman's first name and then you know Harriet Tubman obviously used the name Moses also which is then Moses Washington's name. It does definitely feel like Harriet Tubman and that did not even occur to me until you just Oh yeah, I got I got it's something right. That's great. Um it feels like the work that the work that CK, the um, Moses Washington's grandfather, is doing is also Harriet Tubman's work, which is not just um, getting people out through uh, the Underground Railroad, but um, but fully getting free himself and then going back, which I think in general seems like I don't know. I was trying to read up on this. I I don't want to say I'm the author- the authority on this. I certainly I'm open to being disagreed with, but it, it feels like it's rare to have people go back in after getting free. And that's like a lot of the people who are going, who are doing the underground railroad stuff are people who, who were established in other, in other ways and then pulled people out. Right. So I, I feel like Harriet Tubman is a little bit of a um, standout person. Yeah. But, but the interesting thing again is I remember Harriet was actually not a slave. Um, yeah, so Harriet... 
because Harriet her mother in the, in the Harriet Brewer, the character, as opposed to Harriet Tubman. Yes. Yeah, yeah, Harriet Harriet Brewster. Okay. Yeah. 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 Her mother. Her mother is a. I think is is a is a stowaway, stowaway on a ship, and it turns out that that the 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 captain or whatever is is an abolitionist, and then she moves up north with her her daughter by by the master of the plantation. Yeah, there ends up being a lot of becomes mistress to the abolitionists. Yeah, so that that's this is kind of the thing where where I was thinking, here's an op- a missed opportunity, I guess is the nice way of saying it. Where I, I'm like, okay, you turned the Harriet character into a love interest and a sex worker, and then you gave her actual real life accomplishments to C.K., who's a man, and you also um, gave her name. Well, I'm just thinking of like the real life person, Harriet Tubman, this feeling that she's sort of in the book, but not because the, this character who's sort of given her name and in some ways a little bit of her, um, her sort of role in the story, in some ways she's being put into the, as like her accomplishments are being given to these various men and her name is being given to, but that's another way of saying, as you say, that she's kind of the matriarch or the, like the female equivalent figure to these men that he's so, that he's tracing with such sort of avidity. I don't know. I felt very ambivalent about that move. Let's just say. Yeah. Because she's the one who rises up to the, yeah. Cause uh, again, a lot of this stuff ends up getting compressed in, in, into the end, but that she almost becomes a sort of legendary counterpart to to CK, and she's the the one who really, I I guess, inspires him to to go and 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 start rescuing people. In the first instance, because she, you know, she goes off on this mission and. You know, I think at this point she's she's actually pregnant with CK's child, as it turns out, and she goes off, and then she is though she again she she's the inspirational um, figure. I, I don't maybe the Beatrice to his Virgil, maybe that's a that's a bit. It is it is a very Beatrice kind of. It's a um, it's like that's her role more. Um, yeah, she, like, but, she's, she's uh, in a sense the she's the muse and the matriarch because she grows she grows up like and in, the, in, in this sense her feelings mirror the men she goes up pretty privileged um, she's educated cool. on the basis of her mother being the mistress of the abolitionists and Harriet herself says that that the man treated them well, he wasn't unkind, but there's still this, in her mind, this sort of patronizing sort of feeling where where they are subordinate to him. Yeah, yeah. 
um, that there's a, a section there where he's talking about her coldness and how she isn't like flirtatiously negative about, um, you know, whatever boys who like her as a teenager, she's just um, absolutely uninterested, which is something that is a great virtue in John's perception. And I, I thought that made a lot of sense. Would you again sort of make, make her the spiritual ancestor to, to John and, and Moses and, and all of these, these people? Yeah. I, I, I think that that coldness, that idea that, that you shouldn't be swept away by um, sort of what you're being told about what's going on around you, but you really need to concentrate on anything you can hang on to as a fact that's not being pushed by somebody's agenda and really resist any narrative you're being given and resist any pleasure that you might get from the greater society because it is absolutely going to turn around and lynch you, which is really a very persuasively told story about the necessity of resistance to really any narrative you're given without investigating. Well, I was just thinking, this is my impression, that's not really true of CK. Really? Because I actually thought that one of the moments that really stood out to me about CK is that he decided to go and pull slaves out of you know, through the Underground rail, Railroad because he thought of it as like a way to sabotage the economics of this system. Like that he was sort of thinking about it as an economic system, not thinking like, oh, I'll have mercy on these individual people. I will do something kind. Um, he was like, how can I throw a shoe into the gears of this terrible machine? Right. So there is that. So that's that sort of what we come to 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 see of like the the Washington line. Yeah. I almost said the Washington consensus without something else. <laughs> However, if you look at his again his his relationship with with the women in his in his life, you know. I'm thinking of again his his relationship with his with his his first wife, his relationship with with Harriet. It it seems like there's something there which which it's warmer. Yeah, it's warm. It's definitely warmer than than Moses. Yeah, what did you think of that? The the revelation that Moses married and had two sons specifically because he wanted to mimic CK and then he never slept with his wife again after he had his two sons. Like and was sort of made a point of how much he did not love her. Um what did the, well, what did you think love of that? her in the in the conventional sense. That what? Yeah, exactly. That he kind of, I mean, they, they didn't sleep together anymore. Yeah, well, 
Well, I must maybe we'll have to. This is all I was saying. It sounds like a whole bunch of dismissive avoidance in this family. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, <laughs> well, and also obviously he really didn't want that. Um, I guess what Jack was calling like womanish, sort of the the professor, the like that side of of her family. Right, but also also remember that. Uh, according to John's, I don't know what, what we should call it, his, his formulation is that the great change in, in Moses comes, I think, when he... I think when he figures, when he discovers what happens to to CK, and this would have been in the early forties. Yeah. So this is before he goes off to war. And but then also remember, but he gets married in forty six. Yeah, that he goes off to war in order to encounter death the way that CK did, and then he marries to have sons the way that CK did. So that, so by the time he, he gets married and has kids, that trajectory, which leads to his eventual death, he's already on that trajectory. Yeah. And it's interesting that at least, yeah, which I'm going to say, if you're on that trajectory, why, why would you then go in and, and start a family? Well, because CK did. But then, yeah. Um, which is, it's actually interesting to me that that's, like, that um, that John does not want to do that. That Judith is saying, let's have a baby. And he's saying, eh. Right? Like, he doesn't, he's not able to sort of get there until he really understands his father's life and his father's death. Right. Right. Um, that was my interpretation of that anyway, like why he was so ambivalent about having a child himself. Yeah. I am. You know, I, or maybe he just doesn't want kids. It's also (laughs) totally fair. (laughs) Well, then kids are expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I mean, (laughs) all the reasons in the world. I'm not sure if he's, Uh, maybe he's waiting until he gets to Um, but but yeah, that that that, that is true. That that the, the trajectory you know is leading. Yeah, John has I, I that's the same thing, you know, and I guess the whole, the whole thing about, you know, leaving this, this material behind for for somebody to until the next man needs it. Well, the next man isn't going to come unless he produces. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I I guess it's partly John's ambivalence about what his heritage actually is of whether he would want to give it to somebody else. Yeah. Because again, John is completely, Oh, I, I don't want to say, well, he's not completely. I get that that's part of part of the, the growth. But like 
he is in, in some ways deracinated. Yeah, yeah. You know, and because even when he, I think that that's part of the reason why he ends up abandoning Mara because he figures she's she's never going to leave. He's never going to come back. So this is not going to, this is not going to work out. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think that it's, um, it's a point that feels like one that a lot of authors were making. Um, I mean, it reminds me of Philip Roth, honestly, the idea that um, the freedom of supposedly post-racial society allows this kind of, you don't have to sort of stay in the society you were born into necessarily. You do have more opportunities to, I don't know, marry somebody that doesn't look like your mom. Um, But that there's a really profound loss associated with that. That is maybe actually too much loss to bear the, the lack of identity and community and um, continuity with the past and sort of acknowledgement of the dead. Yeah. I think that that's frankly, that's a, a large part of his, of his issues with, with Judith because he, he really can't open up himself to her because he hasn't, he hasn't integrated that whole aspect of his life within, within himself. Yeah. And it's really hard to see this book as making the argument that that relationship is good and should result in a child like that. The relationship seems so like she listens to him explain. I think, I think everything. I, I think John makes, makes a little progress at the end. He, he does what? I think John makes a little progress at the end. I'm rooting for them, right? Oh, <laughs> okay. I'm rooting for John. I'm rooting for Judith. I don't know that I'm rooting for John and Judith to be a couple. Um, just because I just, again, I, I think that she's fairly thinly written as a character. It's hard for me to imagine that like, true respect is going to grow between them. I mean, quite, 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 quite deliberately so. I mean, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that that Judith is a psychiatrist and yeah, John's a, John's a historian, you know, you know, even if let's say if Judith were, let's say a fellow academic or, or if she, if she were a lawyer, you know, that whole dynamic would be, Yeah, it seems like the best moments, like the best moments of their relationship are when they're just like physically holding each other, like just lying together be, in bed or very different. So, and he you just know, can feel like that, human that, warmth from her. Like that seems like that's sort of the best thing that they have to offer each other in a way. Um, yeah, no, I, I mean, she's like often trying to make him coffee and then eventually realizes that what he really wants is a toddy like Jack used to make. And so she starts making those for him and he gets drunk. Um, Always initiated by her.
And I was, well, I was concerned. John, John seems to be a bit of a lush. It definitely, <laughs> that's for sure. He's definitely drinking a lot of alcohol, um, and only like only actually acknowledges that it results in drunkenness like once. Yeah, one. Yeah. Um, but um, I, I think that there's still that feeling inside their relationship that he believes that sort of the best thing she can do is listen to him talk and like make him beverages, but it has to be like the right beverage, but he's not going to tell her what the right beverage is. He's just going to like resent her for making coffee um, and then be rude about it. And um, there's still kind of that feeling that she's sort of mainly there as a resource to be kind of consumed. As a sounding board, but a sounding board, but also like that he sort of, that she owes him kindness and that she owes him politeness and he doesn't owe her either of those things. But there's a good reason for that, you know, like as she sort of analyzes that, like he has very reasonable degree of resentment toward white people. Yeah, because I go, I mean, not to. No, sure. Just psychoanalytical. You know, you know, he. And this. Okay, I don't. I was about to say that, that John craves intimacy. I, I'm not sure if I should even necessarily say that. I think the character but, is well enough written that I don't think it's a reach to to sort of read it through it that yeah, far. But, yeah, okay. He does, but then he's also repulsed by it. Like, I guess, like, in a sense, he's happy she's, you know, Judith. Initially, he's leaving. She wants to go. Remember at the beginning of the novel, she wants to leave with yeah. him. He tells her no. Then, you know, he sends, when he's up there, he sends her this letter, and then she's the one who has to make her way up to him. You know, yeah. every little act of intimacy, even just from holding hands, is initiated by her. Even when she's acting as his interlocutor. There are various points where he is on 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 one hand he's he's aloof and, and, and standoffish and, and, and terse. But there are various points in the novel where he is almost wishing that she would prod him with, with deeper questions at, at various points. Definitely. I, um, I think that the whole rubric of why he is in this position with respect to intimacy is laid out by Jack's speech about sort of dignity and control and orneriness. It, it makes absolute sense that he both craves intimacy, but feels that, accepting it would be too great of a loss of, of everything that like all of his personhood. Yeah. So, you know, there's a, like, there's a, a sort of, I am using the wrong terms, a, a sort of counter dependency there where he's, you know, he craves independent, he craves, he, he wants intimacy, but he's also 
fiercely independent and you know he 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 can't find a way to to reconcile it and I think again that that seems to be an ongoing theme within in terms of the interpersonal relationships within the the book that 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 sort of tension though I, I guess is is attention to <laughs> the most most relationships of that of that kind but like it's, it's really exaggerated in this in this sense yeah. you know so you're almost wondering I'm like I'm wondering along with Judith like does he even want her why does he want her around why does she stick around it's what after five years yeah. like what's it definitely has the feeling that he's kind of stuck in life in a lot of ways and that he really has to understand this thing about his father and the, the whole, all the mysteries connected to the book in order to sort of release himself to figure out anything about what comes next in his own life. Yeah. So in, in a sense, this is the sort of, of, I mean, I, I think I, I must have mentioned this earlier. This is the, the grand generational trauma. Well, there's so many traumas throughout, and I guess this is the this is a this is a major one. I was just thinking, though, it's actually not this because there, there's a situation of with Bill and all this sort of stuff. So yeah, there's there's so many traumas that are are like the storytelling is very vivid about a lot of them. Um, but I think that the story really ends with a, the opposite of trauma, a, a great feeling of, oh, of catharsis and healing of the idea that that he has actually reclaimed something that was taken away by Christianity and slavery, but something that's profoundly his own and includes all of the dead as not lost. And I think it's also a sense of how should I put it? Because John, like, he's one of the people who's who's um, who. I guess there are many people who who cannot, and and John be one of them who can't separate the their their intellect from their from their emotions. Yeah. So, because remember what what John is actually burning up are the the, the primary thing which gets burned up are are the cards. Yeah, at the very end of the book. Right. So there's this this sort of um, once once he's able to to figure figures this this thing out intellectually, then. He's able to. I don't know, as as you said, there's a there's a emotional there's a catharsis. Yeah. Because what yeah what what really gets burned up are you know. The pens, the pens, the pencils, the you know, the cards, the notepads, and whatnot. All the stuff, the tools that he's using in his investigation. So once he is. He's figured out to his 
to his satisfaction what's happened, then okay, we can we can move on. Because even the because remember the the whole when we're talking about what you know what facts, what is truth, what is history, again, history is what happened, historiography is, is you know what was written about. Yeah. So even all this all the, like the narrative about what happens to to CK, well we don't actually know that. Yeah, that's that was something that I found really striking about the book was how much for all the emphasis on facts versus uh, interpretation um, or received interpretation, um, it, the whole, I mean, I, it's almost like a third of the story of what happened in the past is just purely conjecture. Because I think the, the paper trail ends... Um, I'm trying to remember which year was it. Was it December 23rd, 1859, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, yeah. Um, so everything, I don't want to say, again, conjecture might be a, a strong, might be a, a strong word, but it's, it's almost... It's almost like communion, really. Right. Um, and that's why he doesn't need the paper anymore and can burn it at the end. He doesn't, he, doesn't, he, doesn't need, he doesn't need the paper anymore. Because at this point, you know, the facts have, have diminishing returns at this point. So now it's a sense of, one, a leap of, of, the, of the imagination, not so much in the sense of... of reinvention but in the in the sense of as you said this this communion and this and this reconciliation with the with the tradition all right that's our episode on the Cheneysville incident um, thank you so much to Matthew Thank you, as always, to Adam Bear for our music and to all the people at uh, LitHub for hosting us. Um, we love hearing from our listeners, so please tweet to us at LitCenturyPod on Twitter and write to us at LitCenturyPodcast, gmail.com, and we'll be back next week. <laughs>